Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and this is the sixth episode of season three of this podcast. My guest today is Colin, and I used to joke with him that I should introduce him as Melon Cullen and the Infinite Sadness. But no, he is Colin Harper from Bitcoin Magazine, and he is responsible for part of the work which brought me on board on Bitcoin Magazine because it was him during the Bitcoin 2019 conference that messaged me and said, hey man, are you around? Because maybe we should talk and you could possibly write for us. And I'm forever grateful for that. I'm happy that I get to talk to Colin. He is one of the nicest people ever. And he has yet to show any signs of having any kind of ego with him. So hi, Colin. How are you doing, Vlad? Uh, happy to have you on the team, man, and happy to be on the podcast. Yeah, this is thrilling, really. I used to hate you at some point. I remember uh, when I was working for Crypto Insider and you posted that article about Adlo not storage being passed by Jack Dorsey. And I guess uh, yeah. like 10 minutes or something and Jack Dorsey retweeted your article and I was so pissed. Yeah, man. I mean, I feel it. I've had uh, people beat me to stories in the past and it always hurts. You know, it's like, ah, shit, they got to it before me. Um, but, you know, uh, it's a bummer. I wish uh, wish you could have uh, gotten a retweet by Jack as well. But like I said, glad you're on uh, Bitcoin Magazine now, even after a Crypto Insider folded. Yeah, I'm happy. There's nothing to complain about this. I got to a point where I don't think I have any higher you know, purpose or goal in this world. It, once you get to you know, Bitcoin Magazine, it's like the ivory tower itself. You, you find oh, yeah, man. articles about five times before publishing and you have about three editors who read your stuff before it goes live. And before this, it wasn't quite like this. You had at most one person proofreading and they usually had no idea whether or not you got your facts right. They wouldn't check. And it was much more important to have it published fast and then correct along the way if somebody tells you that you have made mistakes than to actually get yeah. something right the first time. And that's Yeah, for sure. I remember that a lot with some of the sites that I used to write for when I was getting into freelancing for like Bitcoin and crypto. Like the Merkle back in the day was like this. Uh, CCN was a lot like this. Um, and a handful of other ones that were really just like hobbyist sites during the ICO boom which is crazy. It's like, like during 2016 and 17, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain news sites just started springing up out of nowhere uh, all over the place. It really accompanied the ICO boom in a strange way. And they kind of fed on each other too because they were all posting like, you know, scammy promotional things and things like that. Um, and just all of the sponsored and paid content. That, like the lines were blurred between whether or not it was sponsored and it was all these... PR firms and ICOs just throwing around money to get coverage. It was a mess. Oh, I remember that. For I sure. So articles about stuff and they would tell me, oh, how about you write about this? But why should I write about it? Is there anything special? Does it, you know, tell it apart from the competition in, in any way? This is just some kind of ICO or project which promised to make some kind of payments to the organization for which I was working. And I was being given some kind of assignment from time to time to write about this. I mean, there were people who were shameless in this regard and wouldn't care 
about it. And I would say, just give me anything. I will, uh, as long as you pay me for it, I don't care. And I was right. focused on stuff in which I could actually believe and that I could relate to and say, this actually has some kind of potential. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what like our pivot was about too back in uh, the end of 2018. We were like, we're going back to Bitcoin because it just, it didn't make sense to be spending time covering all these other projects that fundamentally were associated with really not much progress just like at all. Um, whether that be technical or whether that be actually like getting users, um, you know, I, I, I'm a little more of a softcore maximalist. Like I wouldn't mind if we started covering some things Ethereum, even if that were to be critical about it. But I mean, I think pivoting back towards strictly Bitcoin has been a very good move. And it's opened up the content and the focus towards this industry in a way that wasn't, I don't know, wasn't as available when we were covering a bunch of other things. Um, and it gives us a chance to bring in guys like you who are really, you know, strong Bitcoin maximalists who really get the brand and who really want to, you know, keep, uh, keep on fighting the good fight. I remember the day when I read about Bitcoin magazine switching to Bitcoin only. And I read that article, which was basically telling a story about how Bitcoin magazine has been around since MasterCoin, which was the first ICO. Mm-hmm. And then it tried to stay clear along the path of 2017 when it was kind of blurry you, you can look yeah. at and say oh these were the legit projects and these are the ones which maybe will be around in the next five to ten years but around the time there was so much hype and there was so much promise about certain technologies and certain projects which right now are dead and unless you are very technical and were able to know who was behind them and what kind of people they are, and if these partnerships with the organizations with the promises on the projects were actually legit, because I know, like, I don't know, Stellar promised a partnership with Microsoft or something, and IOTA promised lots of partnerships, but where are they now? I guess right. they'll die out in a couple of years. And... It was all about some coins promising to do scalability better, to do privacy better and improve on to what Bitcoin has. But we have learned it maybe the hard way. That it's all about network effects. and Yes, absolutely. I was just about to say, like, you know, first mover advantage is real and no amount of fundraising or hype or media presence will really change that. Um, and because it ultimately also boils down to security in a lot of regards, you know, how secure, how old is the chain? Um, how long have people put their trust in it? Um, and to think in a lot of regards that this, a lot of this technology that was overhyped to begin with would come to replace Bitcoin because people were marketing it more was always, you know, dubious at best. Um, I also remember so- that whole movement of blockchain not crypto yeah for sure um in blockchain not bitcoin and now i mean i think we're starting to see the pivot in the opposite direction did you see uh did you see hacker noon's recent blog post like their uh announcement did you see that no they basically said they're going to stop letting certain coins be advertised and they're going to pivot a lot more back towards bitcoin and like Ethereum and Litecoin and XRP, 
But their kind of point was, you know, obviously a lot of cryptocurrencies have proven to be fraudulent and scammy. Uh, a lot of ICOs, obviously. So, and to deter that kind of like false marketing, they're just not letting people post about that kind of stuff anymore. Um, which uh, I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, someone in our uh, in our company Slack was like, you know, in a year or two, everyone's going to be pivoting back towards Bitcoin. Which, I mean. I don't think slow, solely on Bitcoin. I think you're still going to have blockchain uh, as a narrative in some places, and you're still going to have people talking about Ethereum unless it just completely dies out and some other altcoins. But the but the narrative, I think, is going to be obviously uh, majority Bitcoin in a lot of regards. I guess you can also see right now, as we expect for a new bull market to emerge, that the pattern does not repeat. It's not like 2017 where, where people invest in whatever seems cheap and they regard as the next Bitcoin. And you look at the Bitcoin dominance right now and you see that it's maybe around 70%, which is a lot more than it used to be two years ago. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we saw it go from like 80 down to like, I think it's low point was something crazy, like below 40. I'm not, I'm not totally certain. I actually Google that really quickly. But it got into like maybe the high 30s even at one point, and now it's climbing back up. And I think that's one of the things that's going to be an interesting narrative in this next bull market is like alts being just juiced and people just going into Bitcoin. Because there's a very strong possibility where when alts start capitulating um, and certain like whales just give up trying to keep a certain altcoin afloat in the market, I mean, what are they going to sell to um, there's probably not going to be enough dollar liquidity on those alts. So they're going to have to go to another coin like Bitcoin. And it's probably going to be Bitcoin. Maybe they'll do Ethereum or XRP if they're dumb. But um, I like to think that whales are not really dumb. They may take risks expecting that people follow them. And right. I don't think that they will capitulate so easily you don't think so no i i think that at some point there will be that media hype and it's going to be all over the news once again and the narrative that you're going to find a project which is the next bitcoin it will always be around right um sorry i'm looking up the dominance yeah so on February 20th, 2017, Bitcoin was at 86% dominance. And from February all the way down to June. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it was all the way down to January 8th, 2018, which is at the top of the bubble. Bitcoin's dominance was at 33%. And ever since the bubble burst, it's only been climbing. I guess that was the climax of the ICO bubble. Yeah. Absolutely. And that Ethereum was about $1,500 or something. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, dude, it was. And I remember I was at my first or second ever. No, I was at uh, yeah, my second ever conference um, at that point. I had only been writing. Uh, you want to know, uh, know my dirty little secret, Vlad? Sure. I was a shit coiner before I joined Bitcoin Magazine. So I was uh, writing for this one uh, like site called Coin Central. Uh, we used to write guides and stuff for just. It was my first gig, and we used to write guides for all like the shit coins and altcoins that came out, just like what their white papers were saying and stuff like that. 
and I went to a conference in January. So uh, this was in, I started in 2017. I went to a conference in January and the first one was a blockchain connect, which is run by this Chinese media company called SV Insight. And the other one was Neo's DevCon. Um, and I remember talking to one of Neo's, uh, like one of their core, uh, uh, you know, executives. And I remember asking him, what would you say to someone getting in the cryptocurrency market right now? And this was in January when the bubble, when like the market was shitting its bed or about to shit the bed. Uh, and he said, you know, don't get in. It's too hot right now. And uh, little did he know that altcoins would begin to bleed in the bear market and in the reaccumulation of the bull. But uh, anyway, uh, just dropped a lot there. But uh, yeah, I used to be uh, used to go to like blockchain cryptocurrency conferences and things like that when I was basically just writing about those. And then when I joined Bitcoin Magazine, I, I pivoted and was shown the light by the likes of Aaron and my editor, Christy. Yeah, uh, I guess you have the studies. You finished the university with a focus on letters or English. Yeah, I, I graduated at a, from a liberal arts college in uh, 2017 and um, had, had a rough summer after graduating and didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, come fall and then I knew I wanted to write but I couldn't find any way to really write about anything um, I, I couldn't get my foot in the door anywhere and then I found Bitcoin and I'd always known about Bitcoin like I remember my friend describing mining in 2009 he didn't know what he was talking about um, we were like uh, freshmen in high school um, and my, some of my buddies bought drugs off of the Silk Road in college and stuff like that so I'd always known about it and I had noticed that like the market, I was just looking at how much it was back in, uh, this was August of 2017, and it was going for $5,000. And I remember in college, when my buddies were buying drugs with it, it was like at 300. And that just blew me away. I was like, holy shit, this thing is, and then I looked at the altcoin market and thought, whoa, it's not just Bitcoin anymore. It's all of this other shit. And the altcoins are really what uh, drew me in at first, you know, the whole get rich quick thing. Um, and uh, I invested a little bit in uh, Bitcoin and some alts, uh, saw fantastic gains, obviously, in the bull market and ended up obviously losing through holding through some of the bull market um, and just reaccumulated all into Bitcoin um, during the bear. Uh, and um, yeah, so I ended up graduating with an English degree and writing about cryptographic currencies, which my professors back at my university get a kick out of. Really? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, they just never expected it because they don't know what Bitcoin is. Like, you know, no one in Tennessee, I mean, people in Tennessee know what Bitcoin is. People in like the city and like more, uh, I think the wealthier you are, the more likely you're going to know about Bitcoin. I think that's in the States in general, but especially in Tennessee. Um, but in a lot of regards, Bitcoin is still very much like it's a household name in terms of hype and people talking about the price increases, but actually knowing what it is, um, not very many people know, um, you know, uh, people are talking about it, who know about it to their families and stuff. So there are those network effects, but uh, it, it's not like New York or California or a lot of places in Europe. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. What's it like in Croatia? Or Romania, excuse me. Well, you'd be surprised because in day-to-day -day life, I don't know anybody whom I can talk about it. 
but you find all these same places and you discover that there used to be a Romanian who was one of the biggest names in Bitcoin around 2010. He's believed mm. on about 600,000 Bitcoins, which is insane. He mined like heavily in the early days and was kind of the Roger Veer of those times. And yes, where he lives anymore and stuff like that. So when you find out and you're like oh, a country which has 19 million people, and what are the odds for this place to actually be, you know, the origins of one of the biggest Bitcoin whales? And we have lots of good software engineers. I guess that's why they got interested in Bitcoin at that early point, because we have lots of geeks. <laughs> right on, man. But if um, people, they have no idea what it's like. And it's often easy to compare to Ponzi schemes. I've had some mm, experiences in the Right. World. I'm not sure and how I think, communist history you know. Or uh, I've, got, I've got a good, I've got a fair amount. Um, so uh, you cut out a little bit there. How are you relating it back to communism? Or what were people saying? Well... We have been a democracy for only 20, almost 30 years. Right. In December, it's going to be 30 years because we had the revolution in 1989. And in the early 90s, when it was still chaotic, you didn't have any kind of measure to what the society should be and people were still experimenting. You'd have all these Ponzi schemes and nobody knew about them. Ah, uh, okay. Let's exploit. Oh, that's really interesting. So because of Romania's uh, history after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Colin? Yeah, sorry, did I cut out there? Yeah. Um, so because of the Soviet Union's, uh, I mean, because of Romania's uh, history with Ponzi schemes following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, people were very skeptical of cryptocurrencies and all that stuff during the bubble, I imagine. When, when it was at its peak, I mean, the bull market in 2017 and everybody was talking about it. I went to the kitchen and I heard mom listening to the radio and the show host was saying, oh, we don't need any kind of Bitcoin stuff because we have already learned in the 90s how the Ponzi's and pyramid schemes work. Uh, wow, that's incredible. I mean, and that's the kind of language that like just automatically obviously turns people off and they just think they look at cryptocurrencies and all of these different coins and they say, look, look at this bubble, look at all of this excess wealth that's being printed. And it's a shame because it's an easy argument to make. And it's one Bitcoiners actually agree with is the funny thing. It's like, yes, like we don't like that either. And it's, it's hard to distinguish for people. It's like Bitcoin is not like that. Let me teach you what Bitcoin is and why it was created and how it is fundamentally different from things that came after it. Um, and that's what people always say. They say, well, you can just print more cryptocurrencies. It's like, sure, you can print more fiat currencies too. But we don't believe in, you know, you know people in the U.S. use the U.S. dollar, not a foreign currency. Uh, with, with Bitcoin, you know, try sending Bitcoin cash or try sending anything else to someone with, with a Bitcoin address, you know? Sometimes I try to talk with my father about, all this stuff and he, it all comes down to 
who controls it. And he has this idea that it's kind of a conspiracy to fool us millennials who have no understanding of money. Mm. And yeah, new generation Ponzi to him. And he says, I think it's some kind of governmental organization because otherwise it would not survive for such a long time and they would mm. down. Does he believe uh, the NSA launched Bitcoin? I guess, or the CIA, or the Chinese, or the Russians. Yeah. Not very clear, but in his mind, the fact that there's a Satoshi who owns 1 million Bitcoins and he can crash the market at any point. So then that's the Ponzi element. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if a lot of people... That's such a complicated situation because it's like to pe- for people, that's either like... That's either a big a, a, a feature or a bug, right? Like some people think that that's a good thing because there's the game theory argument that he'd never do that because it would destroy what he created. Um, or if not destroy, then debilitate it. Um, and there are other people obviously say that's, a, that's an attack vector, that's a weakness. Um, but there's also like the nuance that we don't, I mean, we do sort of know, but uh, we, don't, we don't know if those are just Satoshis, which I guess opens up another kind of, angle of worry depending on how you view uh, bitcoin's creation and founding yeah we we like to agree that its conception was immaculate and the people who got in early on had no sense of greed it was just pure curiosity mm, yeah people like yeah laszlo guy who ordered pizzas yeah for sure i have no idea how big this could get or maybe he had but he didn't. Yeah. It was so easy to acquire so many Bitcoins that why would he bother? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I interviewed him for Bitcoin Pizza Day this past year. And that's, I mean, he said exactly that. He's like, I, I was, he was like, it was a hobbyist thing. I didn't think it was going to necessarily go anywhere. And uh, for him, I thought his perspective was pretty, pretty cute and refreshing. He was like, you know, he was like, when I was buying them, I felt like I got free pizza because, you know, he was just mined all those Bitcoin and he didn't really do anything other than boot up his computer. And back then it didn't cost anything. Um, so it was funny. He was like, I felt like I was winning the internet that day. Um, which I think is true of a lot of like early adopters. Like people always assume that they're rich and that's assuming that they held on to it. You write out a few bubbles, you know, some people obviously have uh, gained enormous wealth from it, like the Winklevosses, but not everyone, you know, didn't just sell during certain price increases. Yeah, that's right, because usually regular people who mine some Bitcoins will just look at the price and say, okay, this is like 10x or 15x or 20x of what they were worth at the time. Why would I not buy myself, you know, a new car or pay some kind of rent with the money or do something useful? Yeah, seriously. It would increase and there was that first bubble which led up to... What what was the price? Just above twenty or something? Oh, I was like thirty two, I think. Um, you're talking about like the 2010 2011 bubble, right? That one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it was like thirty two, and then it crashed down to like two, I think. And it's not like today when you see. I guess in December 2018, you were watching at the price and seeing it's three thousand something. And you were saying it's coming back because look at all the good news, all the adoption happening among the institutions. And then you have the ETF discussed. And 
you have all of these people gaining interest in investing in this thing. So there is no way it's going to be this low for a long time. But when it went to $32 and then went back to $2, you had no idea that there was any future. Yeah. I mean, right. Like, why would you think that it would? It's like it just went to 32 and then dropped, you know, 30 bucks. And it's like, oh, shit. What am I going to do with this now? Um, and I think that's one of the more incredible things about like Bitcoin's market cycles is like just keeps doing that. Um, and the whole uh, what Dan Held's uh, concept and really he says Satoshi talks about this too concept of, like the negative or, or the positive feedback loop. Um, going back to what you're uh, you talking to your dad about it. My old man's a, a gold bug and uh, he's, he's pretty interested in Bitcoin. He doesn't think it's a scam, which is a plus but he's still kind of a skeptical boomer and uh, he, he hasn't put any money in it yet. I told him back when it was at 3K, I was like, hey man, Bitcoin's dirt cheap. You should get some. And unfortunately he did not listen. And then it went up and he was like, oh, it's too expensive now. It's like, well, yeah, that's, that's why I told you you should have gotten it when it was dirt cheap. Um, my father is actually Gen X. Oh, he is? Yeah, that, that would make sense. My dad's almost Gen X, but he's just on the cutoff. Because um, how, how old are you? I'm 27 right now. Okay, word. Well, what was that? Oh, I said word. Word. Yeah, yeah word. I guess you're young. Yeah, I'm uh, 24. I wish I was 24. Hey, 27 is a good age, man. <laughs> there's a club 27 oh yeah there is um yeah so uh you're going to some pretty cool conferences uh pretty soon right oh yeah there's that one in Cluj in Romania which is about 10 hours of driving from where I live but I will go all the way and I can't wait to make a presentation there it's going to be about confiscation and I guess it's part of all these discussions which start from the question of why Bitcoin? Why does it make any sense? Why does it have any value? And oh, cool. if you look at Saifedean nowadays, he's talking about the destruction of Bitcoin and how it can actually happen if governments reverted and went back to the gold standard. Because he believes that there is no value in this kind of asset if your money is backed by real gold and you can actually use cash, which is the most private form of making payments as you can only show your face to the person who receives the money and it's very confidential as opposed to having a credit card. But there's also the part about confiscation and that's very, uh, I don't know how I should call it, but when you come from a family like mine, which had all the wealth confiscated when the communists came and then they had their wealth inflated when the regime fell after 1989, you realize... Yeah, it has a, it has a different significance, um, especially to those of us in you know, America and some places where we haven't had those kind of economic turmoils and really political and social turmoils and control. Um, I think it definitely has a, a deeper significance for y'all and for just like, I think that's why like places like, you know, Prague is like apparently a pretty big cypherpunk and Bitcoin city. And a lot of Eastern European uh, countries have a pretty big Bitcoin followings 
and, and, and like very fervent supporters in ways that I don't think you see in the States as much. You have no reason, really. Yeah, no, we don't. Right. It's, it's a money-making game for, for people in the States, right? And that's how it gets portrayed, and that's the draw for a lot of people. Um, but that's one thing that I like to encourage people, you know, and when you talk about stuff like this in the States, people assume you're paranoid when you talk about, like, and this goes back to a lot of things like guns rights and not even just traditional conservative rights, but just paranoia about the state, like libertarian sentiments. It's like, that's one of the things that I like to stress to people. It's like, yo guys, we have a pretty sound dollar, but our banking system is still involved in a, uh, in a feedback loop of what is going to eventually just be terrible debt bubbles. And eventually if our currency is not worth anything, then you're going to wish that you had something hard like Bitcoin or precious metals to hedge with. Um, and they assume that it can never happen back home, but if it happens elsewhere, it can happen here too. Let me tell you something about the American stock market. It used to tell me about it, Vlad. own only about 30, 40% of the world's assets. And the world was kind of distributed in this regard. You had the German stock market, which was also worth 20-something percent, and you had the Chinese one. But now you have the American stock market, which owns about 60% of the world's wealth. Jesus Christ. So in case Wall Street does something very dumb, just like they did in 2008, 2009, then the whole world is fucked. And it's not going to be as easy for the rest of the world to adapt because you have the government just, you know, a few hundred miles away from New York or maybe 2000. I didn't count. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, but I see what you're saying. It's going to have so much more trouble trying to adjust to problems which are not theirs. Right. They're only That's not... They rely on a system which is not as stable as they believe. Yeah, I mean, they do. And, uh, you know, that's another thing for putting Bitcoin into perspective, I think, for some people is they look at, you know, wow, Bitcoin's got, you know, the peak of the market, the entire cryptocurrency, at the peak of the last bull, the entire cryptocurrency market was worth something like 800, uh, $800 million or $800 billion, excuse me. Uh, and uh, right now, Bitcoin's market cap is projected at $200 billion. Um, but you know, people say, well, that's so much. And when you really think about how much of the wealth that Wall Street and derivatives, if you look at the, the derivatives market is enough to make someone insane. I mean, you want to talk about printing money, you're creating value out of, like you're basically creating a contract to trade something and saying that has value. Like, are, are, you, are you kidding me? And people want to talk about how Bitcoin is an inflated and uh, a market in a bubble. When you really start looking at uh, legacy finance and legacy markets, uh, the products that Wall Street has created to basically create more credit and value and wealth out of nowhere is insane. And uh, I didn't even know that Wall Street accounts for like 60% of the world's wealth. If that's true, that's fucking insane. I mean, it doesn't account for it, but it trades it because you have all these tech. Oh, okay. American. Right. Basically control world finance. You have companies like Microsoft and Facebook and maybe Twitter, but I guess it's smaller. And Google, which is huge. It's hard to think of any kind of real competition for these companies. And even if they have any kind of competition, it's usually also American. Yeah, right. 
you own the software, you own the patents for technology, even though it, it gets produced in China or Taiwan or India or some other lesser developed country, it's American companies that hold the patents for this kind of technology that the rest of the world uses. And then you also have licenses and the TV shows that we watch on a regular basis are pretty much what used to have about 20 years ago. We have everything from The Price is Right to Jeopardy to Family Feud and everything else. Our television channels are unable to produce anything original, so they buy licenses. Right. Shows and yeah. The and I think... Factor and all that shit. And, and I think... That's why you've seen things like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon come in with their own original series and really knock it out of the park with people. Because no one, I mean, I, I don't pay for cable. Do you pay? For, like, I don't know anyone in my generation that pays for cable. I don't. I don't have cable in my house. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why would you? Because at this point with the internet, we have, we've democratized so many forms of media. I, I shouldn't say fully democratized because that's not true, but... Um, you know, it's opening up avenues for media to be freed up to different content creators who aren't just these companies uh, who have been monopolizing uh, content for, you know, since, you know, you name it, back when telecom became a thing. Um, and Bitcoin's part of this narrative is what I love. I love and, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, you know, the internet of money. It's like, that's what this is. That's what Bitcoin is. Um, and I think once you really... Whenever I talk to my family or people who don't really know much about it, I think once they we really try to explain it to them cogently and they actually get it and it clicks with them, they start to think, wow, that's actually really cool. Doesn't mean they're not still skeptical, but I think if you can really explain the value of Bitcoin and how it works and what it means in relation to the evolution of the internet and the way information and privacy is flowing within the internet – it starts to make sense to them. And those libertarian ideas are stop being so crazy. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to convince Bitcoiners of that. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking that uh, I had this argument with my father at one point about Uber and regular taxis. And he was like, you can't just allow any passenger to go into a car which has no license and pays no taxes and is not properly prepared for, you know, transporting people. And I told him, how can you actually control people who want to share their cars with somebody else? He's like, yeah, but that's doing taxi. And I said, no, taxi, being part of a taxi company implies being part of that kind of framework. But Uber is outside it. it yeah. Ends of how can I, as a person who walks from, who drives from point A to point B, actually save some costs and take a couple of passengers along the way? And I also told him that reputation and that whole system of rating drivers works a lot better and gives maybe people more trust into the system as opposed to just walking in any taxi, knowing that they are regulated and the drivers should be checked in theory, but sometimes they rip you off or they, they are rude and they make the whole ride feel uncomfortable. And I have lady friends who never walk into a taxi. 
because they are afraid of being harassed. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. And I, I never even really thought about the reputation system, but yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. It, it keeps drivers um, accountable. And I, I've had uh, female friends too, who just like won't get into a taxi either. Or I've had bad experiences like that. Um, one of the, so, sorry, what are you saying? Yeah, I had a sip of water. That's why I didn't reply immediately. But oh, you're good. It's the same with Bitcoin. It relies on a reputation system. The whole space is all about building trust and delivering. And there isn't much regulation yet. There aren't many government authorities no. right. mining, for example. The system is right. in a way to encourage greed in the sense that if they act in their best financial interest, they're still going to be rewarded and it's good for the network. But at the same time, you had bad actors like Bitmain around 2017, 2018, when they were mining empty blocks as a way of getting rewards. And you can right. have miners who censor certain transactions. But the beauty of an open market is that you're going to have another type of competition or a competitor who's going to just accept everything and make the money out of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you made a point. Oh, you made a point earlier that I wanted to respond on. Sorry, I got distracted petting my petting my cats. Um, uh, oh yeah, digital IDs uh, on Bitcoin and like reputation reputation systems. Uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about with something like Bitcoin and especially the Lightning Network. Um, is creating direct monetization for content for creators. Um, and we've seen, you know, there's like y'alls and some small, some like projects that are trying to do stuff like this. Satoshi's Games is kind of a good example too, um, which I know we're, we're both a fan of. We have to, we're going to have to play uh, Lightning Agar here pretty soon because um, I've gotten in there when there's been no one else, except maybe one other player, but I don't know if it was a bot or not. Uh, uh, but, um, I'm really passionate about seeing what cryptocurrency in Bitcoin, uh, you know, the concept of cryptocurrency and with Bitcoin as a, uh, way for users to monetize their own content, what that's going to mean for the evolution of, uh, streaming for media, whether that be music, uh, film, uh, video games, independent gaming, or, you know, journalism and, uh, monetizing content on the web, um, uh, I, I think there are lots of potential for things there. And there are a lot of tokens in the ICO boom that had models around this, but you don't really need the token for this. Obviously you can just use Bitcoin. Yeah. I, I guess Microsoft is the company behind the ID system on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that will be, you know, depending on how it works, it's, it's another layer that I, I'm not quite sure how it'll be monetized yet. Um, you know, I talked to Daniel, I can't remember his last name about it for a story a while back. Um, and it seems like they've got a pretty, pretty, uh, complicated, like structure for how they're going to provide it. Um, but you know, something like that would be huge I and mean, you could have reputation systems built on social media networks and all of this thing, uh, all of that Twitter could integrate with it, which would be fucking awesome. So in the end, Bitcoin is going to support a world computer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
I mean, at least that's what a, Ethereum or ETH heads would, would have with Ethereum. A little bit, a little bit different than that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I find uh, Ethereum maximalists interesting in a way that I don't find Bitcoin maximalists totally absurd on Twitter. But obviously, I'm biased. Actually, I read a post on Twitter today, or maybe yesterday. I'm I'm a bit blurry right now, but it basically said, "What do you call?" people who steal ideas from Ethereum and put them on Bitcoin and claim that they are great. What? No, it, it was an open question and people were oh. coming up with names like Ethereum maximalists. But <laughs> oh my God. That exist for Ethereum have been around for a longer time in the case of Bitcoin, but they just realized that the base layer, the main blockchain is just not stable. There's no way for it to all that kind of data and activity and it's right time to figure out how they can build the second layer which only sends validations on the main chain and it's from this point onwards that they figure out how all these old ideas which they thought that were only possible on altcoins can be implemented into bitcoin and i guess that's part of the reason why we see the dominance going up once again yeah i think that's true and um becoming much more bitcoin centric even the conferences yes absolutely and that's the thing about the conferences too like i mean bitcoin conferences are already a cash grab but shitcoin conferences jesus christ you know um the ico boom fueled some crazy stuff i mean i remember uh consensus uh so fun fact christie's uh brother is Anthony Diorio, who's one of the co-founders of Ethereum. Um, and she was telling me how in consensus 2018, there were like yacht parties and stuff. It, it was just absolutely absurd. And all that obviously was just money from the ICO boom. Oh yeah. And they had Snoop Dogg at the XRP party. Oh yeah. Seriously. Oh my God. There was a lot of stuff going on. They had Lambos parked in front of the place, like the venue. Uh, it's so cringy. It's just so excessive. And it paints a really bad look for the industry, too, is what I hate. It does. But don't you remember all the TV documentaries about Bitcoin that were airing around the time? And they were. That's all- true. I guess any press is good press. It's still awareness, you know? Yeah, but they painted this idea that. You have wacky people who wanted to buy drugs and forgot that they wanted to buy drugs and then they found out that they are millionaires. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's like, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, that's the thing is like media loves that story because, you know, it's big and outlandish and it's attention grabbing. Um, but there are so many more stories, like, you know, that the mainstream media could be telling and they've started telling, some of them have. Um, but you know, it's always gets cited and it's kind of tired at this point, but places like Venezuela and Iran, uh, where it actually is providing a lifeline to people. I think, I, I mean, that's what it's all about. And I think that's why I love writing stories about that and getting the truth out there with things like that, because I mean, that's why this technology was created. It, it disempowers the state and, uh, that makes some people uncomfortable. That's why they just paint us all as anarchists. Which I mean, we some a lot of us are, but 
I'm not going to complain about labels. That's kind of a leftist activity. Yeah, for sure. That really is. Like, what, what do you identify yourself as? Yeah, that's, re that's really hard. Um, I've like, when I was in high school, I identified myself as a libertarian. Um, I don't think that necessarily holds totally true anymore because there are some things with like free market economics that I don't really agree with totally um, in terms of like the way capitalism functions in America as they like. Well, so let me back up. If I had to identify myself as anything, um, it would probably be, if I were to identify myself as anything in an unself-aware way or in a self-aware way, it'd be a radical centrist. And like people meme on that and it's, you know, it's, it's a ridiculous term. Um, but the same with your age. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know where I'll be in a few years. Uh, I've got some, I'm actually kind of an outlier in terms of some of the Bitcoin community. I feel like a lot of people are like extremely like right libertarian. I'd probably define myself as like left libertarian. And some people think that that's kind of an oxymoron, but it's really not. If you look back to the, the foundation of libertarianism, it was originally an off brand, like an offshoot of socialism. Um, and uh, I wouldn't call myself a socialist in you know, any sense necessarily, um, you know, maybe democratic socialism. Uh, people always link it to the state though, and say socialism is all about subsuming services under the state. And like, Traditionally, that's not true, but that's all how it always turns out in practice. And I don't want to be one of those people who's like, oh, well, true socialism or communism has never been truly practiced. Um, so to answer your question, I don't really know, but I would say left libertarian or like radical centrist and to kind of default the two kind of watery, vague answers. You know, it's hard for me to identify with anything leftist when I know that my grandparents were, actually my grand-grandparents were small business owners and they, they lost everything. When right. Communists came and they, they were big fans of confiscation and redistribution. And it's not like it was their utopian society that was being built. Even though some people who otherwise would have been mere peasants for generations ended up getting education, which is great, but they created the, their own system of elites. And yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, I went to school and a lot of the people I hung out with were a lot of them. Some of them were like your run of the mill liberals. Um, some of them were straight out leftists, though, and, you know would be self-avowed communist or socialist, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that there's a lot of stuff that just like not living in Eastern Europe or Europe in general, they just like fundamentally don't understand about the history of that political doctrine. And um, that's why I would never, that's why I don't really say that things like, you know, uh, true communism has never been tested because like, you know, in Russia it was tested and whether or not you think that's true communism, because that would be their response to what you just said. It's like at, at the end of the day, it still happened. And uh, Lenin and Trotsky and all of them who founded what the Soviet Union eventually became were leftists. And uh, it ultimately just became a power grab. It was just a transference of power. Um, and that's part of the reason why like, I'm kind of hesitant to like, really align myself with anything because it's all bullshit and it's all about power. You know, like if maybe, you know, if, if I were... I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. 
this isn't being completely honest with myself, but if I were more uh, convicted and had more kind of conviction behind my beliefs with these political ideologies, I'd say maybe I'd be in like uh, a cap, uh, an, an anarchist or not really an ANCAP, but just an anarchist in general. But um, I don't know. I, all I know is that the state as it works right now propagates death and suffering. So whatever is an alternative to that, I don't know what it is, but I don't think I have the answers. Sorry, that was a really rambly answer. No, it's actually fine. Usually it's very difficult for you Americans to actually acknowledge that your constitution is brilliant and is the most stable act actually after Magna Carta from Great Britain, like they did not follow up with the royalty after World War II. Right. Yeah, for sure. A symbolic kind of political representation. It's all about the parliament and their elections for the prime minister right now. But the American Republic is actually the best example of a functional political system. And even in times of crisis and turmoil, you still have the kind of leverage to function. The system yeah. being federal is not entirely centralized. So you can have all sorts of situations in different states and you'll still have prosperity and you grant the greatest amount of liberties to a large number of people, which has yeah. been productive. So that is one thing that I am a big proponent of in terms of America's uh, governance system is states' rights. And that always gets played as a really conservative thing. Um, the Democrats have over in the United States have, uh, you know, traditionally been more comfortable with centralizing certain services with the government. Um, but I am a big believer in decentralizing those, like letting those, letting the states make decisions. Certain decisions I don't think should be left up to the states alone. I mean, just quite to put it bluntly, if the, you know, if the civil war hadn't happened and we hadn't had amendments to our constitution, slavery never would have been abolished, uh, at least not for some time. And some Southerners are not so comfortable with making those admissions, but we need to know where we've come from and the abuses that, and the sins that we have you know, caused in the past. Um, and so the certain things I think states shouldn't be allowed to decide on just you know, unilaterally for their populace if certain human rights are being abused. Um, in some ways, I think you can make an argument for the federal minimum wage here, um, but uh, I, I'm big about decentralizing that power and unfortunately, I do agree with you, our, the United States' democracy functions very well, but it's not really truly a democracy. Uh, it's more of a republic. And uh, there are plenty of abuses and a lot of centralization of the power at the top and the most wealthy. And it's only gotten worse. Um, and I don't know how we can fix this. I don't know what would be the best way to do it. Um, but relatively, it's hard to complain sometimes because compared to the rest of the world, the United States is a fabulous place to live. And I don't mean that in the rest of the world, like that sounds a little arrogant, but I mean, compared to a lot of places, especially particularly in the third world, um, I mean, there's a reason that we have an immigration crisis right now. Um, and my heart goes out to those people being detained. What's up? No idea what it's like to live in peace for such a long time. I mean, yeah, right. The nation has been invaded plenty of times and we have a long history of turmoil and we haven't obtained our independence until 1787. 
1878, sorry, that's the American Revolution, which I mentioned, and I had it in my mind. So 1878, it was when we gained our independence from, at the time, it was the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. Oh, right, yeah, for sure. Now Turkey. Yeah, and they were a big deal in Europe around the time. Yeah, they were, man. I mean, they the, people don't think about the Ottoman Empire, but they fought in World War I. Um, and, uh, I mean, they were a big player in European politics up until that massive paradigm shift that happened after World War I and into World War II with Germany's dominance. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's something that people in the United States sometimes take for granted. Like, we've had, even during the World Wars, I mean, we lost people, right? Like, we lost, you know, I think something like, like hundreds of thousands. But we didn't see near the carnage that Europe saw. Um, and we've always, because we've been so removed from Europe and from Asia, and we have that buffer, you know, we have the oceans, um, we've been able to exist without threat of invasion really since the War of 1812. Um, like, you know, that was the last time that we actually had threat from an uh, outside invader. Yeah. So the United States is not that bad of a place. Trust me. No, it's not. Yeah, it must be frustrating for people, you know, some people living like yourself in Eastern Europe and seeing a bunch of privileged white kids scream about how things are unfair. But there are there there are inequalities for Americans that need to be addressed. Uh, like our our racial tensions is very real, um, and it, it's something that I think other countries can't really. I'm not going to say they can't appreciate as much, but the it's just so much different. Like I've, I've been to, you know, I, I studied abroad in England and uh, I've, I've traveled in France a few times and the race relations are a lot different because a lot of like their slavery for them was always an exported thing. It happened in the colonies. So they didn't really have to confront it the same way that Americans did. And they also didn't fight a war over it. Um, I think those things are very real. And I think those problems and complaints are real. Um, there are a lot of other things that, I do agree with a lot of, uh, I think, Bitcoiners who tend to be more on the libertarian right-leaning side of the spectrum. There are things that I think the left camp does that I, I don't totally abide with. Uh, some identity politics, some in its, in its extremes, gets on my nerves. It's actually fun to see the difference between what goes on on Twitter and it's usually people being libertarians and bragging sometimes about their guns or about their sovereignty and trying to protect themselves. And you see people like Jameson Lop trying to look all manly and tough. And then yeah. I guess you switch to something like Facebook where you see family and friends and university colleagues and they are so soft and concerned about the problems in the world. And they try to be, you know, sensitive in relation yeah for sure yeah i mean there's a huge dichotomy and i mean you can see it like i've always just like get a kick out of like carnivorism in the bitcoin space um like that's that's an incredible phenomenon to me like these dudes these like libertarians who are all into sound money and bitcoin and like they're just bragging about eating these fat steaks i think it's hilarious um don't get me wrong i love me a good steak i also love my vegetables um, but it, it really is, and you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's unfortunate because a lot of, from what I've found 
more liberal or left-leaning people are more skeptical of Bitcoin and don't really see the value in it as much or aren't always inclined to be as interested. And I, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's the same reason why they, they're not gold bugs or some of them aren't. But I, I, it's, it, it's upsetting for me because I don't think that sound money or something like Bitcoin should be a political thing. You know what I mean? It should be apolitical. Everyone should agree that a, that, a, that a currency or a monetary system divorced from state interest can be a good thing, is a good thing. I agree. And I even wrote an article when I was at Crypto Insider. And I made the point that Marxists should definitely get into Bitcoin for value. Dude, dude, I'm so happy you said that. I, I'm, so, I'm getting jazzed here. But for the longest time, I've, I've had like in my mind... Uh, a good essay would be Marx would have loved Bitcoin because he would have like proof of work is so Marxist and you can't say that because people think, Oh, well, oh, you know, they, they get like, they shudder at the, like the thought of like communism. Right. And I'm not saying it's communist, but I'm saying Marx would have liked it. You know what I mean? And like by that, by that like logic leftists should like it too. Sorry. I just got really excited, but I'm really vibe with that point that you made. Yeah, have you seen what Seifedean posted today about Marx? Uh-uh. That there are two types of people. No, there are two ways of approaching Marx. Ignoring people who read it and not touching any book by him. Or something. Like that. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing, though. It's like, you gotta engage with those concepts, I think, to really be able to talk to these people. Um, I, I think, here's the thing about Marx for me. I think the way Marx understands how capitalism works and how superstructures in terms of, you know, how the state interacts with monopolies and oligarchies and oligopolies and all of that good stuff, his, his analysis of the way uh, superstructures in society like that, those interact is spot on. He got all his prognostic is correct. His diagnosis is correct, but his prescription is, I, I think where it falls apart for me at least. Oh, I agree because I read some of his works and he's not as bad as people paint him to be just because of his predictions of how capitalism would collapse. But he had some fair points about stuff like commodity fetishism. Yes. Other phenomena which he observed during his time because let's not forget that he wrote all this stuff around the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, for sure. He was publishing the bulk of his works in the in late 1840s, early 50s. Um and that's the thing is like he was writing all of this in 1840, like one of his, uh, some of his more famous essays come in 1848. And this is when there were loads of basically union revolutions all across Europe. And these things were good things because they guaranteed workers rights. And that's the thing about communism is like, it's, it's trying to get everyone a fair slice. Um, the thing is where it becomes problematic is when we're talking about redistributing wealth and redistributing the means of production, what Marx meant by that is the workers take it, which is really a great sentiment, but how it always ends up being, you know, like, how do you do that? How do you redistribute wealth across those lines? How do you make it a workers revolution? Uh, power always has to have an intermediary to redistribute it. And I think what we found with Russia is that once that intermediary or that arbiter for the revolution gets into power, like with Lenin, then, you know, the, the mantle just gets passed down and down and you end up with Stalin. And then you end up with the Soviet Union. Yeah. 
I guess what Marx didn't understand and Satoshi did was human nature and game theory. Marx, mm. like this teenager who had dreams of romantic situations where reality doesn't really count and you can just dream about this utopian world where workers just say we're not going to put hard labor into your projects anymore and we're going to overtake it. But he didn't think much of what happens after. He just said, oh, they're going to share it according to their needs. But right. he didn't predict that people get lazy. And he was lazy himself. He was a drunkard and had pretty bad relations with his finances. And Friedrich Engels would usually pick him up from bars. <laughs> so personally, he was kind of, you know, low life. Yeah. Yeah, not really contributing too much, except in theory, um, which again, I think everyone should read a little bit of Marx just to understand where he was coming from. Um, you don't have to agree with it. And plus, I, you know, to know what you need to argue against, um, you should always brush up on the arguments of your opponents, even if you think they're not worth, uh, worth I don't know, even if you not, don't, don't think they're worth much, especially if you don't think they're worth much. I think the best contribution of Marx to society at large is that governments and business owners were actually scared of the ideas spreading and they started to be more indulgent and accept that workers are okay to just work for eight hours a day and that they should have vacations and when yeah. they should have some, some kind of compensation to make up for the fact that they no longer make any money and it's unlikely that family members will take care of them like it was the traditional families. Absolutely. And like, you know, workers need to have protections. I mean, that's the one thing that I think is kind of insidious about like, I don't know, uh, the idea that like, you know, our, our worth is not just caught up in what we, how, what we work or like what we're doing is work for, at least not for all of us. I think you and I are very blessed to be able to love what we do, right? Like we're talking about like, technology we love and getting to, to pay, be paid to write and do something that we enjoy to do, to think, to translate uh, information, to think. Uh, not everyone is so lucky. And, um, you know, that's why I think it is to remember that we're all humans. And this is another thing that I think is beautiful about the internet, the way that we're going to be able to, people are going to be able to start working for themselves uh, if they know how and they have the right education and they have the right access to technology. But, you know, Naval, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, but I think, you know who I'm talking about, right? No He's got like the, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, he thinks in 20 years, like something ridiculous, like the super majority of people in the world are just going to be working through the internet, working for themselves, which might be a little utopian, but I think it's very possible. I mean, decentralized tools. I mean, think about the way our company works. A company like this would have been unheard of, you know, 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. And even to my father, it's strange that I work from home and I don't go to work every morning and I don't have any kind of office. It's just my yeah. desk in my bedroom. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, so you're writing for a magazine that's based where? In Nashville, Tennessee, you know? Um, that's it's one of your fault as a generation because it's harder for us to afford real estate. Yeah. I mean, yeah, man, it's harder for us to afford like fucking everything with, with, with wage stagnation, with, uh, you know, the housing bubble, um, education bubble, 
all that stuff. I mean, I know I, I you you were a, you were or are pursuing your PhD in philosophy, right? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I started working more seriously in the Bitcoin space, and I don't have as much time to focus on my PhD. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, do do what you can, right? You're making money right now and getting to write, so that's pretty cool. Um, I thought it was really interesting seeing that you were PhD in philosophy, though, because I feel like in our industry, you know, like I was a a, a, a man of letters in university, so I did a lot of, you know, obviously English classes and did like political science and a bunch of humanities. But I liked seeing that uh, you were, you know, a humanities man yourself, because I feel like our industry, it's a lot of either econ people, business people, or, you know, computer scientists or coders, cryptographers, all that. According to my training, I would actually fit in a government position. Oh, yeah. Kind of governmental advisor or work for a member of parliament, stuff like that. What did you do in undergrad? Political science. And I did a master in comparative politics. And now oh, I'm that's cool. in political philosophy. And I, I write my thesis about internet governance. Oh, that's really cool. It is, but I don't have much time to write. And if I have to choose about something which pays for my work and something which doesn't. Yeah, you're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Monetize yourself. You know, you you don't have to go through the, you know, legacy university system, I think, or just like the educational system to be able to make a difference like that. There's also the issue of scarcity. You have to think how many graduates in political philosophy there are or with PhD degrees and they are unemployed. And then yeah. I basically work for the greatest media organization in an emerging technological branch. And there are not, maybe that we are in a bubble right now, but there are not many people who actually know about this stuff. And, and yeah becomes much more mainstream there's going to be more demand for the kind of work that we do yeah things are going to be like you know i can i'm trying to think of famous journalists (laughs) yeah no i see what you're saying but we're going to be just like them but yeah which becomes part of the norm in 20 in 10 20 years yeah, man, this was something that, uh, you know, I, I thought about going and getting my PhD in English. Um, when I was in school, that's what I wanted to do. I loved studying English. I loved academia, pedagogy. Um, and I really enjoyed doing academic writing. I loved uh, literary criticism and theory, researching different, like, because it intersects with so many different disciplines. And you always, you, I would always come out of writing a paper with learning about some new philosophy or some new... Um, some new branch of the humanities, but I had a conversation with one of my professors and she said, if you're going to do a PhD, you got to be willing to do it just to get, just because you love it and not necessarily uh, because you're going to get a job out of it. And I was like, Whoa, that kind of sucks. And, you know, we had two openings when I was there in our English department, each had like 200 applicants. So like you were saying, I mean, it was just abysmal odds. It was like, I'm going to spend, I mean, I would get it paid for because I said a lot of PhD programs work in America, but it's been like six years doing a thesis and I might not even have a job after it um, and, or even a good job. Uh, and I remember my girlfriend's mother telling us one time when we were visiting her, this really stuck, uh, stayed with me. 
we were visiting them for Christmas and she said, she was just reading something about some book on, you know, advice on success or something like that, like a CEO or someone, you know, one of those motivational speakers saying that, you know, the successful people look for openings and look for unfilled talent and things and, and take an opportunity to fill those roles. And uh, when I got out of school and saw, you know, all the cryptocurrency bubble and stuff like that started getting into Bitcoin, I was like, well, I can write and this needs writers, so I might as well try to do this. And uh, I almost, before this, I got a job offer to work at a PR firm in Nashville for music, which I love music, but let me tell you, man, thank God I did not do that because I would not be enjoying my job nearly as much as I do now. Yeah, and there's not as much potential for the future. The yeah, absolutely. And kind of stale. And I know that it's Nashville, Tennessee, which is like the capital of the world for songwriting. For sure. Yeah, but for PR, it's like not, I don't know, for public relations. I mean, it would be, it would just be a really demanding industry. And I would have been able to probably do some cool things. Like I love going to music festivals, so my job would have let me do that. But, you know, with this, I can write about Bitcoin. And then if I want to, I can start, you know, now that I've got some published stuff, I can start freelancing for some journals in Nashville if I want to, maybe try to break into music. Uh, getting paid to write about anything was just such a blessing for me because it's been like a desire of mine just to be able to make my career as a professional writer or journalist of some regard. And uh, being able to do that right out of college was very, I don't know, I was, I was very humbled and blessed to be able to do that. I know exactly what you're saying. Right. feels good, man. But we feels we good. In Romanian, where it basically translates as you're going to die, you're going to starve as a writer. You're going to yep. die out of starvation because there's not much that you can do. And unless you're one of the 1% who are successful in the field, it's just going to be this kind of artistic way of living just like being a musician but i guess it's harder to make it as a musician musician like a band member or yeah than it is as a writer because there's so much more that you can do with words and writing as opposed to just composing and recording music for sure i think definitely with the internet that's been true too with like i mean that's how i mean look at us you know like the internet has been great for like industry publications and like opening up all these different types of beats and things like that. And has been bad in terms of monetizing content because it's led in ad advertising revenue and in lieu of like subscriptions. So some content becomes bad and diluted, but it has also let more people monetize their writing abilities. Um, it's become a less gate kept profession, I think in a lot of regards. It is a geek profession. And we, oh, I'm, I, I said a gate kept, like gatekeeping. Okay. But yes, I mean, yeah, it is a geek profession, especially, <laughs> especially ours. Yeah, and gate kept. But it's going to get bigger, right? We all expect for this to grow. And the people who have been around for a longer time, they, they have known something much more than we do right now. And yeah. They ha had this kind of blind faith and whatever project that they were working on. And I can think of the two founders, the two co-founders of Bitcoin Magazine. They're Vitalik Buterin, and the other one is actually Romanian, Mihai Anisio. Mm -hmm. 
and he got rich from the Ethereum ICO and now lives in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, seriously, He's just like chilling. I mean, fuck, dude, that's what I'd do. If I made millions from something like that, I mean, I might keep going, but I tell you, the first thing I'd do is I'd buy me a house in Colorado so I could go skiing, and then I'd buy me a house on the coast of Scotland so I could have a place to go in Europe, and maybe one in France. Switzerland would be good, but that's way too expensive for me. Uh, I don't know if you'll be able to sustain this kind of lifestyle because you're going to pay a lot of taxes. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know, man, if you, uh, if you made, I mean, because they, depending on how long he held, he, he could have made out like a bandit because the Ethereum founding team, not only did they get, you know, basically the founding team like pre-mine, but they also could accumulate, you know, during the ICO and stuff like that. They had like 60% pre-mines for the founders. and Wow, was it really 60 I'm not sure how Jesus. the proportions look. It's either 40 to 60 or 60 to 40. Because the thing is, I know, I know that Anthony from Christie, Anthony sold out pretty early, but he still made a lot of money from it. It's not like dude's hurting, you know? Like dude still made millions from it. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I think that's really where I, the buck did stop with me with Ethereum is the distribution was not, not like Bitcoins at all. Well, to me, it was all about the broken promises and trying to yeah. all at once, but not being able to accomplish anything and get it right. And also the centralization, because you basically have three people in a conference call being able to make changes overnight about the plans. And you're going to see how they decide to have delays for some kind of network upgrade. And that's what they call their hard forks. And then you're going to have a delay for the mining difficulty adjustment just so they can please a handful of people who maybe sponsored their activities. So it, in this way, it's very centralized and it's nothing like the point. Yeah, absolutely. And like, like for all the promises and stuff like that too, it's just, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it could, be, I think there's a very real possibility that it can and will be around in some capacity. Um, either that or something might totally kill it and replace it. Um, I think though, in terms of like, one of the things I think is that like, what I always say is Bitcoin has proven that it has a use case. I, I think, and some say, some would say it's too early for that, but I think the whole decentralized monetary system and store of value or just digital gold, the whole digital gold name, like that, that's a hard use case. It is hard money. Ethereum cannot call itself hard money. So the only way Ethereum can justify it being, it's, it's being a relevant asset at all is if smart contracts are actually a, is going to be as good as everyone says they're going to be in that camp and that people use the Ethereum ecosystem to support some sort of, you know, uh, decentralized financial system. I'm not going to say DeFi because I hate that, but if it can do that, and I think that it could still, I really do believe that Ethereum could prove itself on this front, potentially. I think there's a chance that it could, um, but I'm not going to say for certain, and I think it's more likely that uh, the kind of smart contracts that they're going to want to deploy, if you want to do it in a decentralized way, they're going to be able to do it on Bitcoin eventually in a way that's just as scalable as Ethereum, because like you were saying earlier, Ethereum can't support this on the main chain. It's going to have to support smart con or, uh, secondary scaling eventually. 
um, or they're going to do it through some sort of shitty like closed enterprise thing, which isn't going to offer the benefits that Bitcoin offers at all. Uh, I was about to crack a joke about the fact that you defy DeFi. But I still use decentralized finance. <laughs> oh, yeah, DeFi, DeFi. Uh, I do DeFi, DeFi. Yeah, I do a little bit. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's the best, best word. Um, but I, I assume you're pretty, uh, pretty set in stone. I won't say anti-Ethereum, but you're not convinced at all. Also, coming back to that argument about Marxists, uh, in that article of mine, because I wanted to mention it, I basically distinguished between two major categories, and you have the more anarchist type of leftists who are anti-establishment and believe in that utopian kind of society, and to yeah. very appealing, the idea that they can have stateless money and any kind yes. of asset that cannot be taken away from them. And maybe that they have wet dreams about some kind of redistribution scheme with it. But other than that, they should be loving Bitcoin. The social yes. on the other hand, who are closer to the center and they are what you American call, Americans call liberals. Yeah. They are the ones who love the banks. And to me, that's mind blowing because they will name out every injustice in this world and they will try to eliminate any kind of privilege. But it's like they play the game of big banks. They just trust them without any kind of questioning. Yeah, dude, it's... it's... Banks are great. Oh, sorry, go ahead. To them, banks are great. And in our modern times, banks are actually an extension of the state. Yeah, for sure. And that's the thing is like, especially think like in, in America, especially some like some like actually extreme leftists have more nuanced opinions about banking. But for your mo like for your average, just like run of the mill, milk toast liberal or Democrat, um, you know, they they're neolibs, right? Like a neolibs here being like the the uh, the economic uh, application of the term where, you know, they're just all about big business, big capital, and they're they're all about those banks and the system that lets propagate all this stuff that obviously we as Bitcoiners are against. Um, and you know, I I don't know why some people. I guess it's because, and this is where people call you conspirator if you say stuff like this. But I mean, look look at what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. Like conspiracies are becoming, uh, you know, are becoming chic. Uh, but uh, you know, at the end of the day the reason people will support Keynesianism and uh, all the stuff that's related to that is because they were told in school that this is the right thing because we use this system. Right. And they're just not being critical and the establishment, you know, make sure that this is what people believe in some regards. Um, and they have a vested interest in making it stay and they kind of make the rules in a lot of regards. So I think that's why it's become so ingrained for people. I agree, but at the same time, you have to think about the fact that you have a certain percentage of annual inflation in your currency, and in the United States, it's about 2%. And then you have banks which do not give you an equal amount of interest when you deposit. And right. Realize that you're basically screwed. If you want to save, there is no way of doing it, and you have to invest your money. And for that, you need some kind of education or good information yes. like putting your money onto the right kind of assets. 
Yeah, absolutely. But if you don't invest, you're going to see how your money loses value. And it's not that much in the case of the United States. But in right. the world, it's insane. Yeah, for sure. Yo, uh, I hate to cut this short, but my girlfriend's about to get home and I'm cooking shrimp fajitas tonight. So I'm about to have to hop on that, uh, hop on that cooking game. Okay. You want me to leave this part and let you mention what you're cooking? Uh, no, you can leave it. It's totally fine. Okay. <laughs> as long as you don't care. I don't care, really. Maybe Rad. We'll say that they want a portion of their delicious. <laughs> yeah. We'll put it on the blockchain, man. We'll launch a fajita token. Oh, yeah. But an 80% free mine. <laughs> yeah, at, at minimum. And 10% founders' rewards. Yeah, and five percent obviously to the operations, right? Because we gotta make sure we have enough funding to 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 you know to keep it afloat. Well, hey man, this has been really fun. I really appreciated it. Um, once again, really glad to have you uh, have you on the team. And to all his listeners, if you don't follow him already, you should. Uh, awesome writer and uh, great thoughts on Bitcoin, especially as it relates to things outside of its immediate orbit. Also, I should mention your Twitter dash. It's as I lay huddling. Uh, yeah, that's a William Faulkner reference to uh, As I Lay Dying, which is, some people think it's in relation to the band, but it's not. Uh, so, huddling can be like dying in some respect. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Because you're gradually aging, and if you huddle too much, you'll end up holding on to the assets without actually doing anything, which some people are fine with, like Mr. Huddle in Bitcoin. Because that <laughs> yeah, for sure plans to just huddle for the rest of his life and pass the Bitcoins to his nephews or something. But anyway, this has been great and I'm happy that we got to record this. Have fun cooking, Cullen. And Thanks, man. This again sometime. Yep, absolutely. So, goodbye. See you, man.